for all those uh, who, like me, come from an Italian background, you'll appreciate and understand the following story that was sent to me to encourage me during this time of my health challenges. An elderly Italian man lay dying in his bed. While suffering the agonies of impending death, he suddenly smelled the aroma of his favorite Italian anisette sprinkle cookies wafting up the stairs. He gathered his remaining strength, lifted himself from the bed, leaned against the wall, slowly made his way out of the bedroom, and gripping the railing with both hands, he crawled downstairs and with labored breath leaned against the door frame and gazed into the kitchen. Were it not for death's agony, he would have thought himself already in heaven. For spread out on wax paper on the kitchen table were literally hundreds of his favorite innocent sprinkle cookies. Was it heaven? Or was it one final act of love from his devoted Italian wife of 60 years, seeing that he left this world a happy man? Mustering one great final effort, he threw himself towards the table, landed on his knee in a rumpled posture. The aged and withered hand trembled on its way to a cookie at the edge of the table. And just as he had it within his reach, suddenly he was smacked with a spatula by his wife who said, Back off, they're for the funeral. Oh, the encouragement some of you have given me in these last several weeks. What's the point? Well, sometimes it's easy to miss what's really important in life, uh, to major in the minors, to have misplaced priorities, and as it's been said often, to miss the boat. And with that in mind, and speaking of such, today we come to a passage in Luke's gospel, which is a perfect example of misplaced priorities. So if you've got your Bibles, please turn with me to Luke chapter 5. Those of you who are here that need a Bible, we've got some for you. If you just raise your hand, we'll bring one to you, the ushers. But in the meantime, Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, where we learn that Jesus teaches his disciples and ultimately us that we should be in the fishing business of catching men for life. In Luke chapter 11, I'm going to start in Luke chapter 5, starting with verse 1 through 11, we read these words. It says, Now it came about that while the multitude were pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. So he got in, and he says, And he saw two boats laying there, and they were washing their nets. And in verse 3 goes on and says, And he got into one of them, speaking of Jesus, got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and he asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and he began teaching the multitudes from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing. But at your bidding, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. And they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon... And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear, from now on you'll be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything 
and they followed him. You know, a few years ago, a friend of our family turned a very successful career in the, in the National Football League into an outdoor show for ESPN. In, the show, in that show, he would take celebrities from various industries on hunting and fishing trips. I used to tell him what a tough life he had, but he said, you know, someone had to do it. And uh, he said, I, I know, and I've met few folks who love to hunt and fish more than him. In fact, he once proudly wore a T-shirt that said it all, and the, and the T-shirt simply said this, I fish, therefore I am. <laughs> and if that wasn't enough, when he would send birthday cards to fellow fishing enthusiasts, he would always sign at the bottom, may all your fishes come true. You know, I couldn't help but think of him and, uh, and smile as I studied this passage in Luke's gospel. For in it, Jesus gives a unique fishing lesson uh, to his disciples. And he uses his mastery over fish in order to teach us all how to catch men for life. And in fact, before we take a look at this passage again, uh, it's important that we understand the background to this passage. And if you've got your Bible in front of you, turn to Mark chapter 1. In verses, uh, one, chapter 1, verses 14 through 20, where we find Jesus' original calling of Simon, who we know as Peter, and also Andrew, James, and John. And in Mark chapter 1, we find this, and it's important to understand the background or the backdrop for Luke's gospel account, because in this account, as in Matthew's, we note that these men were actually fishing when Jesus came by the lake and called them to follow him, and they did. And it says, and after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And as he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, which is the same lake that we just mentioned a minute ago and also known as Tiberias, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you, I will make you become fishers of men. And they immediately left the nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. It's important as we look at Luke's account back in chapter 5 again to recognize that there's a very distinct difference that is taking, a, taking place, though a casual glance may have us believe that we're looking at one in the same scene, but it's not. In this account, in Mark, as in Matthew's, as I've noted, these men were actually fishing when Jesus came along and called them to leave their nets and follow him, and as was noted, they did exactly what they were told. Now, at some point after this initial calling, they went back home, and they went back to their fishing business, which we see here in Luke's account in chapter 5. So as we look at this, we're not told, you know, if Jesus sent them home. We're not told what the circumstances are as to why they uh, left him after originally following him. We don't really know exactly, but I can tell you from Luke's account here in 5 and Jesus' response to them that there's an underlying criticism that takes place as to what had occurred from the first time he called them until this particular occasion that we see take place here. Some have said that in, in Mark's gospel and in Luke's, I mean, Mark's and Matthew's gospel that they were originally called, and here we see in Luke's gospel that they were convicted. They were originally called to follow, and then they were convicted to follow, and then in, God, in John's gospel we'll see that they were convinced that they were following indeed the Savior of the world. So there's a process that took place. They were originally called. 
They become convicted of the calling, and then they are convinced that they're going in the right direction as is recorded in the Gospel of John. So somewhere in that process fall many of us. You know, we're called by God, come and follow me. We, we immediately or think about doing it. We're not totally convinced or convicted of, of the following, and, and yet there's a process that takes place, and I think it's addressed as we see here. As we go through this, we're ready to take a look at what Luke records for us and the four fishing tips, for lack of a better way to put it, that Jesus gives his disciples as to how to catch men for life. And in verses 1 through 3, let's look at it again in detail. It says, Now it came about that while the multitude were pressing around Jesus and listening to the word of God, he was standing by, which is the Sea of Galilee, Gennesaret, the same lake that we see here, that's noticed here. And he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the multitudes from the boat. You know, Luke tells us that Jesus went to the lake and taught the word of God uh, to the multitudes. And while he was there, we're told that he saw two empty boats. And there are two empty boats that are sitting there. The fishermen had, had fished all night. And as we notice in this particular passage, they didn't catch anything, but they were out by their boats and they were mending their nets and they were washing them and cleaning them so they didn't become brittle and break. And it was a process that they went through every day. Every day it was the same routine, same place, same time, same thing. Different results often, but it was a process that took place over and over again. So one that his audience was very familiar with. He saw these two empty boats, and I believe that they were owned by Simon, and Simon, who is also known as Peter and Andrew, and James and John, the first that we saw in the, in the Gospel of Mark. And we'll see them again at the end of this account, come back out and help them. So the four of them are there, the two boats are there, they're empty, and this is the scene that's taking place. They, they're sitting there, you know, and, and I thought how interesting it is as we think about this whole idea of fishing that, you know, they just spent a long, back-breaking, frustrating night fishing with nothing but sore muscles to show for it. You know, it's one thing, and I've gone fishing, I'm sure some of you have, it's one thing to go somewhere, throw in a line, you know, throw it out, sit down, read a book. If you get a bite, you get a bite. You know, and I know that's, not, I don't know if that's really fishing or not, and I'm sure that, you know, we'd have a great debate about it, which we're not going to, but, um, but the reality of it is, you know, and I know fly fishing, you're working a little harder, and I know deep sea fishing, you might be too, but you know, for the most part, fishing is a pretty much a lazy man's sport. And... Uh, <clears throat> And, and, and the fishing today, and I'm saying today, I'm, I'm, not say, I'm not saying, you know, people that make a living at it, I'm not saying those guys that are up there, you know, in those fishing boats off the coast of Alaska, you know what, praise God for people like that because you'd never find me doing anything like that. But the reality of it is, is that this type of fishing is different than what most of us think of fishing. They would go out in a boat, and they would go out, and they would come close to shore, but they would take the boat out, and they would have a net, and the net would be at a, about 100 feet long. And they would go out and they would cast the net into the water. And there would be two men working the boat. One would be on one side, one would be on the other side. And all night long, they would throw out the net. And hand over hand, they would retrieve the net and they would bring it in. And they would hope as it got closer to the boat that there were fish in it. And if there wasn't, they threw it back out and they did it all over again. So to help you understand what's taking place here and how frustrating it could be, I mean, it's frustrating. And the reason, it's just not enough action for me. Fishing is just not, there's just not enough action. And, and it's like, and it's not really a sport if you can't hit somebody. And so <laughs> that's the other thing. It's just like, you know, it's just not the same. But, but so, 
And, and you can imagine, you know, all night long, pulling in the net, nothing there, throwing it back out, pulling in the net, nothing there. And it took place all night. And you can imagine how frustrated they were, how tired they were, how filled with doubt they would even become uh, regarding their own abilities. Uh, there's a sense of failure that takes place because their family's counting on them. That's how they make a living. That's how they're going to feed their family. And, and, you know, and I can just sit there and picture what it was like to be frustrated and miserable and a sense of failure. And I thought, wow, it's perfect. Because now they're in the perfect place to hear God's voice. It's when we're frustrated and miserable and tired and have a sense of failure in our abilities. And we go, I can't do this anymore. That's when we're in a perfect place to see God. That's where we're in the perfect place to hear his voice. When it's so much bigger than us and our abilities or our perceived abilities, when it's so much greater than anything that we have to offer, God has us right where he wants us because now we're willing to listen. Now we're open to what he has to say. And I'm excited for them because now they're in a position to listen to his counsel. I can't help but wonder at this point why they return to fishing. You know, had they tasted failure in ministry that led them to return to the comforts of a fishing business where they believed they were on the top of their game? They believed that's our area of expertise. We went out and we followed you. We tried. We failed. We're going back to what's comfortable for us. We're going back to what we think we have control over. You know, I've seen that happen often in the past 25 years of walking with and following, hopefully, closely God's leading in my life. I've seen people get all excited about ministry. I've seen people get all excited about their walk with the Lord or their professed faith in Him. I've seen them get involved in ministry, and then all of a sudden I've seen them go back to the way it used to be. Maybe it was the obstacles. Maybe it was the failure. Maybe it was a lot harder than they thought it was going to be. Maybe it was, you know, that it wasn't everything they thought it was, the initial high and adrenaline rush and that buzz wore off, whatever it is. And so they've kind of gone back, you know, to what's comfortable, their comfort zone. And I'm always concerned when I see that because Jesus warns us very clearly that there are some who receive the word gladly, yet they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then when affliction and persecution arises because of the word of God, immediately they fall away. They're the ones who receive the word gladly, it says, but they have no roots. They profess faith, but they've really never been born again. Because then they start to walk the road that God wants them to walk. They they start to go deny yourself daily and pick up my cross and follow you. I'm going to be persecuted for following you. I'm going to have to pay a price for claiming that you're my Lord and Savior. I'm not interested in that. I tried that once, as one man once said. I'm into something different now. Jesus went on to say, Or the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things come and choke out the word. You know, perhaps you're at such a place in your life. Uh, You've lost, as uh, the Righteous Brothers, I believe, said, you've lost that loving feeling. 
you know, on a more serious note, you've lost your first love. You've abandoned your calling. You've become discouraged due to persecution or disappointment or disappointment in people or a person you admired and trusted in the faith. I see many people who have their eyes on other people who let them down and fail them. And therefore they say, I have no interest in spiritual things. I have no interest in going to church anymore because of that pastor or that board of elders or that person in leadership. I have no interest in any of those things because I have my eyes on man and man disappointed me. And so we go back and say, I have no interest in that. But God always says, fix our eyes on Jesus the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, you know, endured the pain and despised the shame. That we're to consider him who endured such hostility from men so that we don't grow weary and that we don't lose heart. We're to fix our eyes on him, not on one another, though one another we should be great examples for each other, and I'll talk about that in a moment. But the reality of it is we need to fix our eyes on Jesus because he'll never disappoint. The worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. And I wonder if maybe it was like I'm going back to this because I'm comfortable and I know that I can make a living for myself and my family. And, and, see, we, and we don't really know all of that. But we do know that if you're in that position, that this passage has been recorded just for you. In verse 3 we find, if you'll notice this, and he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the multitudes from the boat. And in this verse, we find the first of four fishing tips. If we are to be successful in catching men for life for the kingdom of God, number one, we must first rely on the Lord's direction. We must rely on the Lord's direction. He says, and when he had finished speaking in verse 4, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing. But at your bidding, I will let down the nets. Notice as Jesus tells Simon to put the boat out a little way from land. And it says, and Jesus began teaching the multitudes from the boat. You know, the water made a great acoustic, acoustical uh, sound system, so to speak. It was God's natural PA system. And he would go and he got pushed out and he would speak onto the land and his voice would carry across the water. It was a very practical thing to do. But also at that time, Simon Peter and I believe Andrew got in the boat. And they pushed it off and they went out with him. And now he had a captive audience. As he sat and he listened to them teach the multitudes, they were sitting there, as it were, in the front row. And as any of you know, in the front row, it's a dangerous thing not to be paying attention. Amen? Preach it, brother. Preach that, brother. It's a true statement. So it's because Simon obeyed in this seemingly insignificant area that he will be in a position to behold a mighty work of God. And before we look at the next step, I couldn't help but note the floating pulpit. You know, every pulpit is a fishing boat. It's a place to share the word of God and attempt to catch men for the kingdom of God. I read this and I get excited so that I never forget the whole purpose of what I do. The purpose is to try to entice men to trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Just as the devil tries to entice us to do that as wrong before God, 
we, you and I, as God's people, should entice men and women to trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. It's a floating pulpit. It doesn't mean that you and I will catch men every time that we give out the Word of God. Jesus didn't. The disciples didn't. But we must never forget the supreme business of life is to fish for the souls of men and women. You know, the Bible tells us there's only two things that are eternal besides God. One is the Word of God, and the second is the souls of men and women. Every one of us live eternally. It's just a question of where we'll spend eternity. And so it's a floating pulpit, as it were. And notice Simon's obedience in the little thing led to his obedience in the deeper things. I couldn't help but note that Jesus said, just push offshore just a little. Trust me by doing this. And once he trusted him by just pushing off a little, then Jesus said, now we're ready to go out into the deep water. And what a great principle that is. God will never trust you and I to the deeper things of life until we are faithful in the little things. The principle is, until you're faithful in little, I cannot make you faithful in much. But if you'll just trust me in the little things of life, now I can show you the great works of God. Are you trusting him in the little things of life? And you know what I've discovered compared to God? Everything's a little thing in life. Are you trusting him in every area of life? Because it's those little things, those small decisions that are seemingly insignificant that are the highway to God taking you to being used for greater purposes. And that's what we see here. It's a beautiful picture of that. We're to rely on the Lord's directions. And as I was studying and thinking about it, I'm thinking, you know what, Chuck? What are some of the Lord's directions in our life? to catch men for his kingdom. And the first thing that I couldn't help but think about is, is that our responsibility is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ with clarity. To know what we believe and to understand God's message to mankind. To understand the, the gospel message in its clarity is very simple. That none of us are righteous, no, not one. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Each one of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned from God. And through Adam's sin, entered into the world's sin, and with sin came death. And all of us are spiritually dead to God as we come into this world, alienated from Him and at enmity with Him. The purpose of God's laws is to help show mankind our guilt before God. The gospel message is so clear to help mankind see how guilty we are before God. And then the command is to repent from our sin and to turn to God. To turn away from sin and to turn to God and to trust in His plan for our redemption or salvation that God can make that right which man had made wrong by sending Christ into the world, His Son, His only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on the cross and to be raised again from the dead. The message we are to share with mankind is that we are all sinners who are in great need of God's forgiveness, and God provided the remedy in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. His death on the cross, the power of His resurrection, we are to repent from sin and turn to God and trust in Christ and Him and Him alone for the forgiveness of our sins. The directions that we have been given to share with men is very clear. 
We are to proclaim the gospel with clarity. It's not about works. It's not about human effort. It's not about man's self-proclaimed goodness because there is nothing good in us at all. And it, all you have to do is visit the Orange Street Fair to see the depravity of humanity. And that's just one example. You all been other places where there's other examples. And maybe, you know, all you got to do is have a family reunion. I, I don't know what it is, but, you know, it doesn't take long. Just picture Thanksgiving dinner. That's all. You know, but the reality of it is, is that we're to proclaim the gospel with clarity. And then we're to live for those of us who have repented of sin and turned to God and trusted in Christ and have been born again by the will of God, not by our own efforts, but because it's a God thing and not a man thing. And Christ lives within us. We are to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, which simply means this. We're to live what we say we believe. We're to live in such a way that our conduct and our creed, our behavior and our beliefs, our doctrine and our deeds are in harmony so that no one can discount the message because what they see speaks volumes about what we say. The tongue of our shoe and the tongue of our mouth are going in the same direction. We're to be salt, we're to be light. So that others, when they see our good works, and the only purpose of good works is to indicate that what God says about us is true, that we are new creatures in Christ. Our works won't save us from the consequence of sin, but our works should be an indicator that we have now a new nature, that we're not who we used to be, that we are in Christ and old things have passed away and all things have become new. So that when people see us and they see Christ within us, as Paul said to the Galatians in chapter 2, verse 20, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So that when they see Christ living within us and the works that we do on His behalf for His kingdom, for His glory, so that we can catch men for the kingdom of God, they will give our Father in heaven all the glory and praise. And we're also instructed to trust in the convicting power of the Holy Spirit to use God's word and raise those dead to God and alive to sin to becoming alive to God and dead to sin. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. How in the world, you know, the Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. How does God's word penetrate the heart of man I don't know other than the Word of God tells me that it's a sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. How does God's Word being planted in the heart of you and I bring about spiritual fruition, which is that we're born again and we turn to God, we repent of our sin, we trust in Christ, His death and the power of His resurrection? How does that happen? I don't know other than the Bible says it's by faith. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. How can they believe unless they hear? And how can they hear unless somebody's sent? That's God's purpose. That's God's plan. That's God's message to you and I. We're to go and tell the world about Jesus. And we're to trust that God's ways will work. Not gimmicks. Not promotions. Not all of these things that we think we need to do. But we're to proclaim Christ and Him crucified, and trust in the convicting power of the Holy Spirit coupled with the Word of God that will make dead men to God become alive to God and dead to sin. That's God's plan.
And that's the only way it happens. If we're to catch men for life, we must rely on the Lord's direction, even when it doesn't make sense to us. Notice what Simon says. Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing. What you're telling me doesn't make any sense. Jesus' words had to seem crazy to Simon. After all, Simon was a well-seasoned fisherman who owned his own fishing business. And what in the world are you going to tell me about fishing? Aren't you just a carpenter? There is nothing that's more frustrating than to have somebody who you think doesn't know anything about what you do telling you how it should be done. And it, and, and it never fails in a church. Everybody had an opinion about worship music. Now, whether you can sing, can't sing, whether you can read music or not, whether you can write music or not, it doesn't matter. Everybody's an expert when it comes to worship music. Amen? Amen. Amen. And so there's nothing more frustrating to somebody who's actually trained in music, being told by somebody that the best they can do is sing in the shower when nobody's around, fortunately, and they have an opinion about that. And, and I just use that as an illustration because I also know that it's we're very frustrating for a professional athlete, and everybody knows this, you know, everybody got an opinion about why guys in a, in a slump. You know, it's like, hey, I said, you know, I meet with, you know, with one of the guys one-on-one. I tell him, I say, look, man, you know what? Last year you used to smack your bat every time you came to, to, to hit. And, you know, that seems to be what the problem is because you're not smacking your bat anymore. You know, and I just tell him that messing with him because everybody's got an opinion. Oh, no, you should be doing this. You should be taking a step forward. You should take a step backwards. You need to move this way. You need to move that way. You need to keep your eye on the ball. Good counsel. You know, it seems you're pulling your head. And, you know, and, er- and it's, everybody's an expert, you know. And, and, as, and sports is amazing because everybody, you know, that's played any sport thinks they know everything there is to know about it. And yet at the same time, we're all sitting watching these people on TV because we're not that good. <laughs> but it doesn't stop us from having an opinion. See, and I can imagine, you know, Simon's kind of like going, man, you're, you're a carpenter, man. Tell me about, you know, whittling some wood. But don't start talking to me about fishing now. And I love God because God knows us. And he understands how just plain old stupid we are sometimes. And that's why he calls us. We're like sheep. You know, there's no dumber animal God created. He created sheep for the purpose of helping us understand how dumb we are. They didn't create them and they go, oh, maybe I'll use them as an illustration later. He created them first saying, I got this all planned out. I'm creating these dumb animals so that these dumb people will know that they better trust in me. And so when we look at this, you know, he had to get that off his chest. And there's two things that, that I, I, you know, it's kind of like, you know, he just kind of got it out of the way. We worked all night, didn't catch anything. And if that would have been the end of the conversation, we wouldn't have learned anything by catching men for life. But I want you to know there's two things that Simon Peter does that every one of us need to do if we're going to be successful in catching men for the kingdom of God. Number one, he called him master. Simon answered and said, master. The word master is a beautiful expression. Every time it's used in scripture, it speaks of authority. The word means master in the sense of captain of the ship. What he's saying is you have just assumed the captaincy of this ship. You are in charge. It's a word that's used of being a governor, of a chief commander, of a magistrate. Every time it's used in scripture, it speaks of the person in ultimate authority. He says, master, you are the ultimate authority. Even though we fished all night and we didn't catch anything, 
he acknowledged Jesus as the one in control. And what he does indicates his complete submission because notice what he says, but, I love that, but, nevertheless, nonetheless, at your bidding, I will let down the nets. We caught nothing, but you're saying go out and drop the nets, then I'll do it. That's what God looks for in each of our lives. Complete, unreserved obedience. He doesn't mind us asking him the questions. You know what, Lord, I don't understand this, but as long as there's always a but, and as long as there's always a Lord. Lord, I don't understand what you're doing in my life, but you say the word, and I'll do what you want done. I, I'm there. You've been there. We've all been there. I don't understand your Lord, but nevertheless, thy will be done. Your will be done. And I'll do what you tell me to do. See, God wants availability and not ability. Because we don't have any ability. I know that's very humbling to some of us who think we're amply able, but we really don't. And anything that we have, as Paul wrote to the Corinthians, has been given to us by God. So if we boast of anything, let us boast of him. God took a slingshot and a willing heart and defeated a giant. God took a few loaves and some fishes and a willing heart and fed multitudes, up to 20,000 people. God took a boat and a net and trust in the master. And man, the lesson they're about to learn is one that I hope you and I never forget. See, what God is saying to you and I is our understanding is not crucial. But how, God, how does that, it doesn't matter. Our experience is not reliable. But, but I fished all night and we didn't catch anything. I just laugh, you know, because so often churches and, and church people have a mentality that, you know, but we're, we're the pros at this. Hey, you know what? There's only one master. There's only one head of the church, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's only one blueprint to follow, and that's his leading and the Holy Spirit's leading in our life, and we follow the word of God and God's leading. And you know what? And all the rest are great ideas sometimes, but you know what? God's, God's church isn't a cookie-cutter business. It's not a Krispy Kreme franchise where this is the way it has to be done. Every church has to be this way. If you want to fill seats, this is the trick to do it. Hey, you know what? We follow the Lord. We preach the word of God. We trust the Holy Spirit's conviction and the power of the word of God and the lives of people, and we're going to follow God's direction. And you know what? And this church is going to be different than any other church that because every church is different if they're following God's leading in their life. And so as we look at this, I get all excited because at the end of all of it, the only thing that is essential is our, be, our, our obedience. Nevertheless, I will do as you say, which puts Simon and all who obey in a position to number, to number two. Look at this. Realize the ability of God. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great... And when they had done what? When they had been obedient. When they did what they were told to do. When they trusted him in a little and he sent them out to the deeper things. When they did what they were told to do, even when they didn't understand it. Even when their experience says, it's not going to work. We're going to go ahead and do what it is that you tell us to do. And they dropped their nets over. And they were probably yawning. And they were probably bored. And they were probably still frustrated. And they were probably still tired. And they were probably waiting to be able to say, look, you don't know anything about fishing. You know about carpentry. You know what, but 
Father, we're going to do what you say to do. And you know what happened? They woke up real quick. They woke up real fast. They, they, the, the, their nets began to break with the amount of fish. They signaled to their partners in the other boat who were on the shore. They jumped in their boat. They threw in their nets. They went out to help them. And everybody, the multitudes on the shore, were all going, Yo! Jesus! Woohoo! Oh, baby! This is, oh, man! Look at this! Why was it so stupid? Because you don't catch fish in the middle of the day out in the deep water. You fish at night near the shore when they come in, and that's when you fish. You don't fish out in the middle of the day in the deep water. And you know what they learn? That God is able. That God is not limited to human knowledge nor human experiences. That God, I mean, can you imagine this word picture? These guys were just hooping and hollering and yelling and screaming. The crowd was cheering. And you know what, man, this, this is better than a home run to win a game, man. I mean, there were people going, whoa, this, they never saw multitudes of fish caught in the middle of the day because nobody did it because nobody ever caught anything. And guess what happened? All their fishes had come true. Was awesome. And, I went, and, and it was just one more outpouring of God's power. Whenever I get discouraged, I am discovering it is because I often forget the ability of my God. And I'm going to challenge you when discouraged, frustrated, overwhelmed by a circumstance in your life to go to the Bible and note the awesome power and ability of God. Recently, as I've been struggling with some things in my life and been challenged by this cancer thing, I've turned to Scripture where one cannot miss the awesome power of God. Start at the beginning and work your way through. God took dirt and made man and breathed life into him. And he became a living being. Now, if that's not awesome, it gets even better from there. When I was a kid, I played with dirt all my life. Every little boy plays with dirt. We all try to do things with dirt, but I never made dirt come alive. You know, you can go to the beach and you see sand sculptures and you see all these cool things, but you'll never see anybody sculpt like, you know, kind of a fish or whatever it is, and then blow into it and have it get up and swim off. God is awesome. His ability is, is, is not limited. He created the world. He spoke it into existence. He took something that didn't exist and made it something that we all see and enjoy today, his creation. How awesome is that? You go through Exodus and you see the plagues of Egypt and you see the passing of the Israelites through the Red Sea. And in Exodus 13, 16 and 14, 31, it says that the Egyptians and the Israelites saw the great power of God. I'm in awe as I consider David and Goliath and the walls of Jericho and the deliverance of Joseph from prison and Daniel from the lion's dead and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from a fiery furnace. I'm in awe as I see Jesus' authority over the devil and demons and disease of every kind as he's in control of nature and the winds and the rain and the seas even obeyed him. I'm in awe as I think about his greatness over man's supposedly greatest enemy, death. 
as he called Lazarus to come forth and as he raised the widow's son and, and Jairus' daughter and then as he was raised himself three days after being crucified and the tomb is empty this day and he is alive and 500 and more witnesses saw him after his resurrection. The greatest enemy of man is death. But he says, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And then I stop and think, wow, man, we have marriage problems and health challenges and financial difficulties and we've got people entangled with drugs and alcohol and sexual immorality and we deal with stubborn, hard-hearted co-workers and friends and family who continually reject Jesus as Savior and we get all frustrated because what have we done? We take our eyes off of Him and we begin to look at the circumstances instead of focusing on the One who has great ability. We need to realize the ability of God and He is not limited. And if you are struggling or challenging in an area of life, I challenge you to take it to God who, has, who is, can do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we can ask or think and see what He will do. Take your eyes off of your problem and fix them upon, hopefully, the one who has become your Savior. This past week was an exciting week. We went into the UCLA Medical Center on Wednesday and sat down and, and heard the diagnosis that was given and were told that there would be a, a review board, a panel that would look over the pathology reports. We were given several scenarios or options from the fact that, you know, we might have to do chemo and radiation for six to eight months and then additional surgery, depending on how that all went, uh, that maybe at the best case we'll do surgery now and then radiation and chemo later. And he looked at me and he said, you know, the problem is, is that, um, you know, the good news is this, this, and this, the MRI is clear, your chest, cancer, all, that was all good. He says, but the bad news, you have cancer, and if it spreads to your lungs, it's fatal. And I said, well, we, we need to make sure it doesn't happen. You know, I'm a guy, man. That sounds simple to me. I mean, you don't have to talk a whole bunch about it. It's just like, well, let's not have that happen. And so two days later, he said it'd be about a week, but two days later, my wife got a phone call from this particular oncologist specialist, and he said, uh, and and we had an interesting conversation. I had my World Series ring on, and so uh, the illustration is, and and I like this guy already, but he kind of went, and he has no personality, and he has no bedside manner, and he's a typical guy, but we got along great. I wonder why. Um, but, but uh, you know, he saw my ring and he goes, uh, and, and he said, you know, in the, in the type of cancer that you have, there's only a few people that know really that, that I would trust to deal with this. And he looked at my ring and we talked about it in a while. I said, well, here's the way I'd look at it. He goes, you don't call up a pitcher from double A to pitch game seven of the World Series. Oh, yeah, I understand what you're saying. And he goes, these guys are game seven guys. I said, well, that's nice to know. So two days later, we get a call instead of a week later, which is just an answer to prayer. And he said, he goes to my wife, and I wasn't there. He said, well, I I don't know really how to tell you, but that this chaplain thing must be paying off for your husband. (laughs) And uh, because, you know, we saw what we saw, and I think if we do surgery um, as quickly as we can, then we may be able to remove everything surgically and then just deal with radiation or something like that, which has been my prayer because I really struggle with the whole chemo idea. Um, and not because I'm afraid of losing my hair, um, but <clears throat> although it would be interesting to see how bumpy the head is. But, but, um, but so, but, and Linda just responded and said, well, you know, there are thousands of people praying. And 
to which he just said, okay, well, if you can get the, uh, the approvals done by this afternoon. So make a long story short, we go Tuesday to have, um, we're, we're in God's hands and the surgeon's hands to see what he can do, and we just trust God. And, you know, and, and the bottom of all of it is this, you know what, uh, but nevertheless, I'll just follow you. I, no, nevertheless, I trust in you. I, 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 you've got my attention because I can't even pretend I have any knowledge or expertise in this area. So God, you got me right where you want me to where I will pay attention to everything that you're trying to teach me, which is a great place to be. And so as we look at this, we bring it to number three, recognize the problem of our own sinfulness. I want you to notice this in verse eight through 10. Notice it, it says, but when Simon Peter saw that he fell down at Jesus feet saying, depart from me, For I am a sinful man, O Lord. But in contrast to God's greatness, in contrast to his power and to his ability and to his majesty and to his his perfection and to his holiness and to his purity and to his righteousness and to his intelligence and to his character, in contrast to you, O God, I am a sinful man. Depart from me. Jesus entered Peter's so-called area of expertise and showed him two things. Number one, you don't know anything about what you think you know. You know nothing about fishing or fish. And number two, you certainly don't know much about God. See, when God invades our area of expertise, and I'm praying for an opportunity Tuesday after the surgery to be able to share with this physician that there's only one great physician. See, when man can't understand, and this is what I spent my whole life studying, but we don't understand it. I'm so grateful that I have a Savior who knows all things because I can't even imagine sitting in a room and having a guy say, you know what, we don't even know what your cancer is called. We have to name it something, then we'll figure out what to do with it. Well, you know, you want it called something that they know, and you want it to be something they dealt with. I'm just telling you, I'm being honest with you. It's like, and I'm thinking, wow, God, I'm glad you're in control, because that was not a very comforting statement. And all the little intern people and fellows that were following the guy around taking notes, they were all sitting there ready to cry for me. These gals were like, what? And the guys are, well, we don't know what it's called, but we'll call it something, and we'll figure out what to do with it. Well, that's great. Thank you. Praise God that God knows what everything's called and everything has a name and he knows what to do about it. But I want you to notice that Peter, in contrast to God's holiness and perfection, recognized what all people need to recognize about themselves in order to enter into a relationship with God. Oh God, I'm a sinner. Compared to your holiness and perfection and your righteousness... Peter finally realized how he fell short of the glory of God. We don't like to talk about sin in our culture. That's a word that our culture tries to get away from. Do, do away with, don't discuss it, don't bring it up. They don't like the word sin. Can you call it something else? No, it's a biblical term, and it means that we fall short of the glory of God. That all of us fall short. That none of us measure up. And Peter recognized and understood it. And you know what? And that was the greatest thing that he could ever discover. And you know what he said? He said, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. 
You know, that, that recognition is healthy. That awareness of our own sinfulness in moral agony fell at Jesus' feet and his knees saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. It's the same response that Isaiah had when he saw the, king, he saw the throne room of God and said, For I am a man of unclean lips. It's the same thing that Thomas discovered when he said, I'm not going to believe that Jesus rose from the dead till I see him with my, my own eyes and put my fingers in his womb and my fist in his side. And when he saw him, he said, my Lord and my God. It's the same response that John had as he was given the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he saw him and he fell as a dead man. No one can approach the throne room of God without first recognizing our unworthiness and our sinfulness. And he said, depart from me. Get away from me because you can destroy me. But you know what's a wonderful thing? Jesus didn't let that happen. He didn't let that happen at all. I want you to notice something. When he said, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord, for amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Peter, who said, depart from me, for, for I am a sinful man. Look what he says. He says to him, do not fear. From now on, you'll be catching men. Do not fear. You know what Peter learned from this account and later encounters? Here's what he learned. The multitudes followed Jesus whenever he was giving them something they were looking for. But when he started teaching them tough spiritual truth, they started to fall away. Jesus turned to his disciples and said, you guys going to go too? You know what he said? Where are we going to go? Where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. We're going to follow you. What he was saying to Peter was this. You know what? Never mind about your past failure. When I called you, you came, but you went back to doing what you used to do. And he recognized his failure and not continuing to follow Jesus. And you know what he said? And it's a wonderful encouragement to every one of us who are in the same position in our life today. He says, you know what? Don't worry about it. Don't be afraid. You failed. So what? I'll pick you up. I'm the God of second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, 70 times seven chances. And I'm going to brush you off and I'm going to set you in a direction. And now from now on, you'll be catching men alive for the kingdom of God. And you know what? And that prophecy was fulfilled because the first sermon Peter preached, 3,000 souls trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. The next time he preached, 5,000 souls trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. He said to Simon Peter, he'll say it to you and me, and he'll say, you know what? I don't care that you failed me in the past. You have finally recognized why you have failed, because you put too much faith and trust in you and your own abilities and your own self-ascribed goodness. Now you recognize that without me in your life, you're nothing. Now I can do great things through you. It's been said that man cannot, God cannot use a man greatly until he crushes him and hurts him deeply. Because that's when he gets all the praise and that's when he gets all the glory. And I'm going to tell you something that, that I believe with all my heart as I read 2 Corinthians 12 that God has given me a thorn in the flesh so that I never forget that he is God and I'm just a spokesperson for the word of God. Do not fear is a break with the past. From now on, I will make you fishers of men. 
From now on, you will catch men alive or for life. They were called but returned to fishing as they doubted the Lord's leading. They were now convicted of the sin of unbelief and a lack of trust. And they would grow to become convinced that Jesus is indeed the Savior of the world. And the next time we see the same situation in John chapter 21 after the resurrection, Simon Peter saw Jesus in the boat and a great catch of fish in the middle of the day. And he said, it is the Lord. And he took off his clothes and he jumped in the water and he swam to him because he knew that there was no life outside of Christ. The same guy said, depart from me. He couldn't keep close enough to him. And that is my prayer and hope for each of us today. That we will cling to him as little children, as when our children were little and we said, and as our grandson said last night at the street fair, he said, don't let go of me. <laughs> I say, well, you, you know, you, you hold my hand and you hang on because that's what God wants you to do. That's what God wants me to do. He says, Chuck, hold my hand and don't let go. Hold my hand and don't let go. And I will make you fishers of men. In closing... In order to catch men for life, we must rely first on the Lord's direction, obey Him, preach the Word, sin, judgment, righteousness, repentance, and salvation in Christ and Him alone. Realize the ability of our God. He's exceedingly able to do abundantly beyond all we can ask or think. Our little children used to sing, My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. He's able. He's able. I know that he's able. I know my Lord is able to carry me through. Recognize the problem of our own sinfulness and go to him. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, I am a sinful man. Forgive me and trust in him. And the last thing that we see is it's time to recommit to following the Lord. If you have failed in the past or you're currently even a failure today and that you do not live a life that you claim to believe to be true, then you must confess your sin and agree with God that you're wrong and repent and turn from it. And you're to seek his forgiveness and he tells us that he is faithful and just and he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Fear not. From now on, forget about yesterday. Forgetting what lies behind, we press on to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Forgetting your past failures, from now on, you will be catching men alive for me if you do as I tell you. And there's no better way to attract men and women to Jesus than to live in such a manner that our words cannot be refuted. In closing, I've shared this once, I think, before, and I'm going to share it again today because it sums up everything that I want to try to say as we tie all this together. But the story is told of an African pastor who was overwhelmed by rebels who had demanded that he renounce his faith in Jesus Christ, and he refused to do so. And the night before they took his life, he wrote the following lines on a scrap of paper, which my wife has done up and put on a word processor, and I've got hanging in my office, and I look at every day. And he wrote these words, I am part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast. I've stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of his, and I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense, and my future is secure. 
I am finished and done with low living and sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tame visions, mundane talking, chintzy giving, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by presence, lean by, live by faith, love by patience, lift by prayer, and labor by power. My face is set, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven, my road is narrow, my way is rough, my companions few, my guide reliable, my mission clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, diluted, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of adversity, negotiate at the table of my enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, let up, or burn up till I've preached up, prayed up, paid up, stored up, and stayed up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. I must go till he comes, give till I drop, preach till I'll know, and work till he stops. And when he comes to get his own, he'll have no problems recognizing me. My colors will be clear. Are your colors clear? Are they clear to the Lord and clear to those in your life? Are they clear to those you work with every day and clear to those in your family who are trying to reach with the gospel? Are they clear to your neighbors, clear to your friends, clear to your schoolmates, clear to your classmates? Are they really clear so that they know who you are? It is my prayer today that this church is a church whose colors will be clear to the world. So that the world will know that we are bought with a price. Father, thank you. Thank you for this fishing lesson. Thank you for taking the ordinary and making him extraordinary. Thank you for being a God who's able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we can ask or think. And our hope is in Jesus Christ and him crucified in the power of his resurrection. My prayer today is that your word as it went out, as you promised, did not go out and return void or empty, but it has penetrated the hearts of those who you've prepared to receive it. God, my prayers for those who do not know you as their Lord and Savior, that today would be the day that they would recognize their sin and repent and turn from it and turn to Christ and trust in his death and his resurrection on, on their behalf. I pray for those who have come to Christ that our colors will be clear, that we'll stop living hypocritical lives, that we'll stop saying words that don't mean anything because our actions refute them, and that we'll live in such a manner, Lord, that those around us will see that we've been bought with the very precious blood of Christ. Therefore, we glorify Him in our earthly bodies, and we pray these things in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.